Good morning. I know it sounds a little bit crazy to say that if it rains on Saturday, we're going to have toffs on Friday night. Um, but just to show that I'm not crazy in that one small area of my life, um, we'll, early in the week, uh, we'll call off the outing if there has been rain or if the pile that we're going to have a fire with is uh, damp. And so we'll let you know sort of midweek if we're going to have toffs on Friday night. And uh, if we do get the rain on the Saturday, then we just won't have toffs on that Saturday night. Okay. So this morning, we are finished, Joseph. So we're going to go somewhere else just for a uh, one-off which turned into a two-off. We're going to Isaiah chapter 36 this morning, please. Isaiah chapter 36, and we're going to start reading from verse 1. Aside from a uh, profitable story for our souls, this is an enjoyable story uh, as we read through. So let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 36, and we're going to start reading from verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are vain but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lead, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust in him. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, he shall worship before this altar. Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim and Shebna unto Joah and Rabshakeh, sorry, and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own, insert urine, with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. 
Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or Arphad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Verse 21, But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Answer him not. Let's pray and we'll ask for the Lord to bless our time. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to your word this morning. We thank you that we can read uh, the account of an ancient battle. And we ask, Lord, that this morning you would help us to understand how this might apply to our own faith. Help us to see uh, the truth of the scriptures uh, historically, but help us also to see the truth of the scriptures in application. And so we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would bless in Jesus' name. Amen. In the British Museum in London, uh, you could find a hexagonal clay prism that is known as the Taylor Prism, named after the man who found it. This prism is dated to 691 BC. Upon it, the following words are inscribed in ancient cuneiform. I quote, this is not written in English, it's written in cuneiform, but it's translated into English. Because Hezekiah, king of Judah, would not submit to my yoke, I came up against him, and by force of arms and by the might of my power, I took 46 of his strong fenced cities. And of the smaller towns which were scattered about, I took and plundered a countless number. From these places I took and carried off 200,156 persons, old and young, male and female, together with horses and mules, asses and camels, oxen and sheep, a countless multitude. And Hezekiah himself I shut up in Jerusalem, his capital city, like a bird in a cage, building towers round the city to hem him in, and raising banks of earth against the gates so as to prevent escape. Then upon Hezekiah there fell the fear of the power of my arms. And he sent out to me the chiefs and the elders of Jerusalem with 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver and diverse treasures." a rich and immense booty. All these things were brought to me at Nineveh, the seat of my government. That is not a biblical account, but there are many similarities to the biblical account uh, on that clay prism. Now, the Bible include, improves on this account in many ways, but those essential facts are consistent. Now, this gradual crushing invasion that was from Sennacherib and that was uh, acted out by both him and his generals was a prelude to what we read in Isaiah chapter 36. 
Uh, a number of times he had pushed into that country. His father, Sargon, had pushed into the country as well. And they had caused great uh, problem and a lot of fear among the Jews. And so with Hezekiah shut up like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, Sennacherib's general, Rabshakeh, proceeds to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of those in Jerusalem who were trusting in their God for deliverance. Those who, are, are those who have taken part in conflicts in many different eras have believed in the power of psychological warfare. And that's why we find that both sides of the Second World War filled some of their bombers with pamphlets and not with bombs. Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader, said these words, We plan to eliminate the state of Israel and establish a purely Palestinian state. We will make life unbearable for Jews by psychological warfare and population explosion. It's said that Genghis Khan, the great general, used rumors of a huge army to unsettle his enemies before that army arrived. Psychological warfare has been used in many conflicts and has been used to great effect. And I want to have a look this morning at how it is used by many people who would seek to conquer our faith. The heathen general Rabshakeh, who was from the Assyrian Empire with their headquarters back up in Nineveh, had a, a uh, set goal. He had a plan. And that goal is set out for us in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 4. It says, And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? What does he take aim at? He takes aim at Hezekiah's trust. What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And so his goal was at this point to shake Hezekiah's confidence. And not only Hezekiah's confidence, but also to shake the confidence of those people in the city in both Hezekiah and in their God. And by methods both direct and subtle, this is the goal of many people towards you. It is to shake your confidence in the Bible and to shake your confidence in those who teach the Bible. Perhaps it's a relative who has the goal of enlightening your primitive beliefs. Perhaps it's a friend who feels judged by your holy conduct. Or perhaps it's an anonymous online expert who just feels the urge to ridicule you for something you've said. Sometimes it's not even that direct, is it? Sometimes we hear a passing quote. We listen to a teacher. We listen to a friend. We hear something on the TV and it makes us think, well, hang on a second, what if they're right? And sometimes those doubts do trouble us. The Bible tells us the clear fact that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so something as important as faith in our relationship with God is bound to come under the attack of the world, the devil, and even of our own sinful flesh. In this instance, Rabshakeh seeks to erode their faith specifically in God to deliver them in this time of trouble. But these things apply more generally. And I want to see that the, the specific strategies he uses. There are six that we're going to have a look at. 
are also things that people use in our own day and age. So let's have a look. The first of the strategies that he uses is the strategy of isolation. Isaiah chapter 36, this time we're going to read verses 5 and 6. Rabshakeh says, I say, sayest thou, this is, he's saying what the Jews and Hezekiah are claiming. I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. Leaning upon Egypt had been a regular practice, particularly of the rebellious Jewish people. Rabshakeh was aware also that the surrounding nations at this time of his invasion had made an alliance against Assyria. Egypt was one of those countries. But he describes Egypt here like a brittle reed which would if it was leaned upon break and cut the hand and so he asked the question you think that you can fight against me because you've got Egypt's support do you think that you're going to be able to stand up against me because Egypt is your help Egypt will fail you he says he wanted them to feel both alone and forsaken by someone who had claimed to be their ally. There is no one to help you, is what he wanted them to think. Even the greatest strength that you have militarily will fail. And you know what? He had a point. Egypt had been unreliable before. They'd let the Jews down before. After this time, when Jerusalem would fall a century later... God gave very similar words, not to a heathen general, but to his own prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 6 and 7, have a look over there and you can see the similarity of the words yourselves. Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 6 and 7. Ezekiel 29 and verse 6, And all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of thee by thy hand, thou didst break, talking to Egypt, and rend all their shoulder. And when they leaned upon thee, thou breakest, and madest all their loins to be at a stand. You see, God agrees with the words that this general was speaking to try and unsettle their faith. And you know what? Many times when people try and trouble our faith, they speak truth. They speak truth. While Egypt was unreliable, while this was true, and Judah did not know if they were going to turn up to help them or whether they were going to let them down, the thing that wasn't true is that the Jews had placed their trust in Egypt. This wasn't true. Over in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, we're going to turn over there. 
We have the account of Hezekiah's preparations before the arrival of this general. And so we have a um, special insight into the thinking of the people, the preparations of the people. Second Chronicles chapter 32, we're going to read verses 1 to 8 and see in what they were trusting. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come, And that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And and also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without, and repaired Milo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over people, over the people, and gathered them together to him in the streets of the gate of the city, and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him." might make us think, oh, is he trusting in Egypt? Well, the next verse confirms it. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. The glaring omission in this passage is the title of Egypt. We don't find that anywhere. And it explains to us that neither Hezekiah nor the people of Judah were trusting in Egypt to deliver them. Hezekiah does say there are more with them than with Assyria, but he's not talking about Egyptians. He's talking about the strength of the power of God. And so the Jews were trusting in the Lord their God. Perhaps the Lord their God would send the Egyptians. Perhaps he wouldn't. Now, the idea that you can't trust anyone is a cynical but a popular philosophy. You can't trust anyone. And it often leads to a related philosophy which goes something like, you need to look after yourself because nobody else will. And this idea has some merit, doesn't it? There is some merit to it. People do fail us. Uh, Even friends, even people we thought that we could trust, even Christians fail us. But because that's true does not necessarily mean that we don't trust anyone. This is why we have to have a precise faith. That faith needs to be not in people, be it Christians or otherwise. That faith needs to be in God. Even the Bible says in Psalm 118 and verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now, don't get me wrong, we have, to be very, we have to be very precise about this. Sometimes God uses people to be a blessing, but our trust is not in people. 
Our trust is in God to send the right people along to help. And so in this instance, Rabshakeh missed the mark because he targeted the people. He targeted that country which God might use to help them, but that wasn't where Israel, or what's not where Judah's trust was. And so he missed the mark as he tried to bomb this foundation, supposed foundation of their faith. And so trying to use uh, isolation wasn't an effective tactic, so he turned, he didn't know that at the time, but the next tactic he used was inconsistency. Let's have a look back at Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 7. We know that the trust needs to be in the Lord and not in people. Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 7. Rabshakeh then moved on to say, But if thou say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar. It's almost like he's reading their minds, isn't it? <laughs> we're not trusting in Egypt, we're trusting in the Lord God. And then he says, But if thou say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God. There's a problem with that too. Hezekiah had removed the high places and the altars from throughout the land of both Israel and Judah. Hezekiah had made a, a point of purging the land of these things. And some people were using those high places and those altars to worship the true God. Sometimes they were making their sacrifices in those high places. And so Rabshakeh, the Assyrian general... It's interesting that he has heard of Hezekiah's spiritual reforms throughout the land. He's heard that Hezekiah has gotten rid of these high places and has told them all that you need to come down to Jerusalem to worship at the altar there. And so from Rabshakeh's perspective, it looked like Hezekiah was preventing the people from sacrificing to their God, or at least that's how he spun it. And this was a warped view of what had happened, and it was based on a poor understanding of the worship of the God of the Jews. Because Hezekiah was doing what the law had commanded him to do. Have a look over in Deuteronomy chapter 12, please. Deuteronomy chapter 12 from verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we'll read from verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. And so Hezekiah had followed God's instructions to a T. He'd done it perfectly. He'd called all the people from making their sacrifices in the high places all throughout the land. And he'd said, no, we need to worship 
in Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name, just as God has told us. And in fact, if you do a bit more fact-checking about what Rabshakeh accused him of, we actually find out that it wasn't Hezekiah who did this at all. Let me just read to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 31. It says, just after the time where Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and brake the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin in Ephraim also and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. You see, all the people had pulled down the altars. <laughs> I'm sure Hezekiah was encouraging it, probably suggested it. But these people had done the work. And so for this general to say, Hezekiah has pulled down all these altars that people use to worship God, therefore he's hindering the worship of the Lord, was fake on two grounds, because it went against what God's word said about worship. And it also went against the fact that these people had participated in the ripping down of these altars as well. In terms of challenges, this is something that happens to believers a lot. Critics try to comment on how we are failing in Christianity. They try to describe ways that Christians are not good Christians. And they usually check it against nothing but their own logic or a very scant understanding of biblical doctrine. We hear charges like, you're judging people based on sexual orientation. God would hate that. You're making people feel guilty by not going and joining in uh, social drinking practices. Now, that's not going to draw people to Christianity. That's just judgmental behavior. That's not good practice. You're alienating young people because you're not embracing their culture, even if some of it's questionable. You'll never win people to the Lord if you don't go out and join people. All these challenges come from people who don't know what God wants us to do. Ignorant challenges. There's a lot of commentary on Christian living coming from people who have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know what God wants. Often it's obvious to us that they don't know what they're talking about, but sometimes those flaws in their criticisms are hard to spot. Sometimes what they say sounds true and it troubles us. And it can make us wonder whether we are being loving or whether we are being righteous in the way that we're living our life, whether God is indeed pleased in our faith or whether that person is right and God is upset with the way that I'm doing things. Let's just take a step back from this situation and have a look at motives for a moment. This man Rabshakeh's motive was not to enlighten Judah to help them to worship the Lord more effectively, was it? His motive was to try and weaken their resolve so that he could land grab for his king, so that they might have a bigger empire and so that they might rule over other people. He had selfish motives. The Assyrians were greedy and they were proud conquerors. And so they had no authority when it came to advising the Jews on how to please their God. And we should remember that. The world does not get holiness. They just don't get it. 
They get trying not to be a problem to other people. They get trying to be socially acceptable and doing things that everyone agrees on and that might help out the society at large, but they don't get holiness. They don't get worship. They get entertainment. Sure, they get that. They get fun. They get building events up so that people are moved to come to them, but they don't get worship. Because worship is a spiritual thing. And the carnal man can't think properly spiritually. And so because they don't know God, and they don't get these core principles of what God calls us to, their criticisms of our expression of Christianity are often prone to reflect that ignorance. When they criticize us, it's usually on a false basis because they don't get the things that God wants of us. And it might not even be intentional. They might not even see where their logic is flawed. But it's often when there are these ulterior motives for shaking a Christian's faith that an ungodly person gives bad advice. And so we should be checking ourselves to make sure that our faith and to make sure that our worship are right and make sure that they are rightly directed, make sure that they are things that God really does approve of. We ought to be checking our worship. That's a good thing to do. But we should never let those who don't know God define worship. That's a silly thing to do. So Hezekiah had removed the altars that people were using to sacrifice to Jehovah. And this was in line with what God had said in his word. The word was where the Jews needed to turn when settling doubts over pleasing God, not to people who were shouting over the wall. And there's a challenge for us. When you wonder whether you're doing the right thing, when people challenge you on the sort of life that you're living, don't just listen to those shouting over the wall who have no idea what God has called you to. Turn to the Word of God. Ask God what He wants you to do. Ask God what a Christian should be because after all, God's the one who knows. It's not those who are out there trying to throw rocks over the wall at our faith. Now, Rabshakeh has four more angles from which he will attack the Jews' faith before he tries to attack their walls. And we're going to finish those off next time because we don't really have time to go into it today. And we continue to examine this example of faith under siege. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word doesn't pretend that faith can't be shaken and that people don't try to attack it. Uh, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to consult examples like this and to see what we can learn. I pray that you would help us even today just to think about uh, where we turn for advice. Uh, help us to think about where we are trusting. Uh, help us to know, Lord, that our only security is in you. And I thank you, Father, for being our wisdom. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight into our own thinking this morning. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn this morning is number 33, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And truly we have no other fortress, it must be the Lord.
that we turn to. So number 33, we're going to stand and we're going to sing all four verses on the introduction. Almighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevail.